Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me down here in my humble podcast bunker abode for a Tully Show look back at the new music that was the month of May 1983. As is my custom, I have already recorded and posted a follow-up companion podcast to the show you're about to listen to and hopefully enjoy and it is available and free open to the public open access at patreon.com slash mike tully dolly parton gets a bit of a disco strut on ministry releases an album that they would later disown that frankly i like a lot better than a lot of the album's ministry has not disowned lita ford makes her metal debut and uh i've got the monthly I thought this cover looked kind of cool, so let's see if the music was any good selection from a band called The Flirts. It is all waiting for you for free. Plus, if you want to sign up, there's like 300 additional Patreon-exclusive podcasts. The fun never ends at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, it's Coming to you live on tape from a Goodwill donation bag strewn podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your bleary-eyed host, Mike Tully, and fatigue be damned, I will be your tour guide through a comprehensive look back at the biggest, the best, the worst, the most interesting, the most noteworthy new music releases from May of 1983. Full disclosure... I set my alarm for 6.45 a.m. this morning, and my wife had the gall, the audacity to instruct me to wake up several minutes before that already unholy hour. And listen, I know there's plenty of you who habitually wake up far earlier than that. Congratulations, you're you're a grown-up. And I am not. I am a, a well-documented bitch when it comes to waking up early. And uh, it does not suit me. And it's it's making my job today that much uh, more challenging. So fair warning. Strap yourselves in. It could be a wild ride. Before we talk about the... It's not, it's not the deepest month of old new music releases, but there's at least 10 songs that you know by heart came out in this one single month what we lack in overall quantity eh, quality is a strong word when you talk about say elton john's 1980s output but successful uh all-time type hits a lot of them came out and um a, a debut record from i'm gonna go ahead and say it again the most enduring artist who debuted in the 1980s, debuts in this month. And we will talk about that shortly. But first, we'll talk about a different sort of debut. This is the the music news that was going on outside of the new releases. In May of 83, NBC aired the Motown 25 special. And it's it's funny to think about 
a 25 year anniversary of Motown. To me, that stuff was already in the realm of oldies when I was a kid. You probably feel the same way. 25 years sounded, it's a quarter of a century. It sounds unfathomably ancient. I realized before I started rolling here, I'm I am literally wearing a t-shirt that is more than 25 years old. So obviously my attitude towards that span of time uh, has evolved as most people's uh, does as you get a bit older. But the Motown 25 special on NBC was designed to be a look back at the distant past of the glory days of, of the label. So Diana Ross is performing and Marvin Gaye is performing. And I think Stevie Wonder is there. They have this amazing roster. But all those people are still contemporary hit makers. And yet um, the Motown founder and boss, Barry Gordy, made it very clear nobody was doing the new stuff. Everybody's going to do classic uh, Motown hits. And this thing attracted eyeballs. This is the the prime of the monoculture. There's still there isn't even a Fox network. There won't be for the for at least a half a decade. There's it was estimated 35 percent of people who owned a television watched this special. So all eyes really literally were on the Motown 25 special when Michael Jackson um, bucked the curve, bucked the trend. He made it very clear. And out of all the people, you know, Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye, they were all still going strong, but he was white hot at this point. And he made it clear that he was, he would participate, but he was not going to do an old song. And that definitely ruffled some feathers. They say, story goes, until... They went to the rehearsal and he did the first ever live performance of any kind of the song Billie Jean. And everyone's like, okay, yeah, fine. We'll make an exception for him. Now, as you probably know, that momentous historic TV appearance is not even really remembered for being the first live performance of one of the biggest songs of the 80s, one of the biggest songs of all time. It's remembered for being the time that uh, the occasion that Michael Jackson unveiled the moonwalk. And now all of us at the time and for many years afterward thought, uh, assumed that Michael Jackson had invented the moonwalk. And as you probably heard, it's not actually the case. There's plenty of YouTube videos going around that show you people doing it in black and white days. So before I started taping here, I was like, yeah, what was the deal with that? Who actually invented the moonwalk? And the fact of the matter is that nobody knows who invented it. There's recorded instances uh, back in the 1930s. You may have heard the famous Cab Calloway moonwalk. Did you know Charlie Chaplin also uh, was recorded moonwalking on video? Now, I guess what they did wasn't exactly the moonwalk. It was very similar. The first specific instance that we have recorded of someone moonwalking. And I've heard this name before. I think this is the name you usually hear about the inventor. A gentleman by the name of Bill Bailey performed the move in a 1943 movie called Cabin in the Sky. After that, Judy Garland moonwalked in a movie in 1944. In 1958, Dick Van Dyke moonwalked in a comedy routine on The Pat Boone Show. In a 1969 episode of H.R. Puffin Stuff, Judy the Frog taught everyone a brand new dance called, yes, the moonwalk. And I think it's entirely possible. I don't know if Michael Jackson was familiar with Bill Bailey or even Dick Van Dyke, but I have a feeling he totally knew H&R Buffin stuff, knowing Michael Jackson as we do. I can go on. The famous mime Marcel Marceau did the moonwalk in 1970. Lucy Arnez moonwalked. 
I Love Lucy moonwalked choreographer Bob Fosse moonwalked dancers did the moonwalk on soul train in the late seventies. James Brown moonwalked the rock band split ends moonwalked in the talking heads movie. I'm sorry. It's not the concert. It's not stop making sense in a single, a music video for one of their songs. Street dancers hired by the talking heads moonwalked. But then, oh no, and then Debbie Allen. Remember her? She's a very famous dancer and choreographer. She was on fame. She moonwalked, and then it was in Flashdance. Okay, I think <laughs> I think we're all caught up now. But then, on that historic momentous occasion in 1983, we were all watching. I probably was watching, and given the, the, the viewing numbers, I'm probably not imagining that. After all those people moonwalked, Michael Jackson famously invented the moonwalk moving on into the new music releases we begin with when you talk about the and i've made this case before and i'll continue to make it when you talk about the biggest 80s artists who continued to be relevant beyond the 80s and into the present day with little to no interruption michael jackson is definitely on that short list of performers right i mean he's Reputation's taken a bit of a hit in more recent years. Also, the fact that he is no longer alive, um, definitely, in certain ways, I think it actually helps with his popularity because it's easier to brush aside the unpleasant allegations and associations when he's not here to act weird in real time anymore. But I said at the top of the show, the artist who debuted in the 80s, who remained relevant for the longest time and remains truly relevant today. I I chose those words carefully because Michael Jackson came out in the 70s with the Jackson 5. He had solo hits in the 70s. If you're talking about people who came out in the 80s, Prince, was not an enduring hitmaker for forever for all of his greatness. Madonna obviously has struggled to um, remain uh, ahead of, much less keep up with the zeitgeist as the years goes on. No disrespect in that, but time catches up to everybody. Everybody, I would argue, except Weird Al. In May of 83, Weird Al released his debut album, and I'm only half kidding at this point. The guy has had gigantic hits pretty much almost non-stop and he put out a very successful movie if you have little kids maybe you like me have seen it 11 times already if not i recommend you check out weird the uh the weird al parody of course biopic starring daniel radcliffe it is appropriately enough given weird al's overall vibe a roku exclusive so weird al had already had one or two songs that were on the dr demento show they were like recorded in real time on one track in a bathroom for like the tile acoustics at every step of the way for fairly obvious and understandable reasons. People were like, yeah, that's great. Okay. Al, you'll never make it. All right. You had that one song, but that's the end of it. It's novelty. It's throwaway. That's it's, it's got the expiration date of like milk. And yet he's defied those expectations for like over four decades at this point. So he has a couple of hits. You would think that would at least convince somebody to take a chance and let him release an album. But no, everybody assumed his popularity um, was over essentially as soon as it started. Uh, but somebody hooked him up with the um, the guitar player, Rick Derringer, who has like rock and roll hoochie coo, like real rock and roll credibility going back into the 70s. And Rick Derringer agreed to work with Weird Al. That alone legitimized him a little bit. There was no money to make an album, so Rick Derringer convinced, I think it was Cherokee Studios here in in Hollywood, 
to let Al make an album that they would pay for out of record sales. And even when it was done, they had trouble finding somebody to distribute it. But eventually, Scotty Brothers took it on. The rest, as they say, was history. And uh, he put out he put out his first album featuring this iconic hit. Junkies are all the same All the soda jerkers know my name When their supply is gone Then I'll be moving on But I'll be back on Monday afternoon You'll see Another truckload's coming in for me All for me, I'm singing Seriously, I don't know if you have kids or kids in your life. Kids still dig this stuff to the present day. Even uh, very often I find when they have no idea what the original song was, in this case, Joan Jett, that inspired it. Elsewhere, a little bit closer to the actual top of the pop charts. I don't I don't think uh, I don't think I love Rocky Road actually was a chart topping hit or anything like that. Elton John had gone through a bit of a fallow period. This really is sort of the dividing line. And and I can think of it as somebody who was a kid in the early 80s. There's like the people you can picture on MTV, even though they were kind of too old for the party, and the people who who you couldn't, you know, like the Eric Clapton's of the world didn't figure out a way to maintain their credibility and still appeal in the MTV format obviously he did um later on in the 90s when he did the whole unplugged thing and 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 tears in heaven but there were there were certain artists who figured out and certain artists who didn't and elton john was most definitely despite not being you know they always say that the bands who weren't good looking were done once mtv came along i guess it helped to have already been established but Elton John was not a sexy, handsome man even in his youth, and he was no longer in his youth in May of 1983, and he was uh, seemingly on the in the in decline. He had made an, uh, I think three albums that really hadn't done anything after the prime. He had um, "Empty Garden," which is the the song I think we played that on on this show a year or two ago. Uh, But other than that, not a whole lot to show in terms of commercial chart success until he re-teamed with lyricist Bernie Taupin and produced an album that had not one but two uh, really big hits. And, you know, it's funny just to look back. It was just a much more innocent age to uh, to see the artists who are now out of the closet and to see the ways in which they were sort of uh, suggesting that or hinting at that, or in the case of a lot of them, really not concealing it in the slightest. And yet either people didn't see or didn't want to see uh, some very, very obvious cues. I believe even as a kid watching this music video, I remembering wondering why there were very, very, very few women at Elton John's pool party in the, the video for, you probably remember the video for this song right here.
Elton John off of the Too Low for Zero album that also featured the big hit song. I guess that's why they call it the blues. Donna Summer also successfully transitioned out of uh, the her 70s sound and her 70s associations here in May of 1983 and we've talked about her trying to make trying and failing to make that transition before on this show as well she was known as the queen of disco which was a great thing to be until people started saying disco sucks and putting it on t-shirts and burning disco records on baseball fields and canceling baseball games because of the gigantic riot that they had caused because of how much they hated disco and uh and the transition did not happen overnight i believe on this show, we talked about her last album, which came out in 1982. She worked with Quincy Jones, did not have a terrific experience working with him, nor did their collaboration yield any successful singles. But here in May of 83, again, where is this song without the music video? I am, as you know, from New Jersey. I come from a town that has there's probably when I was growing up, there were probably seven diners within like a two mile radius of the the house that I grew up in. And um, being a diner waitress seemed just a little bit more glamorous after uh, Donna Summer portrayed a diner waitress in the music video for this comeback hit. Elsewhere on the pop charts, the band The Fix is one of those weird acts that's from the UK and yet is, I wouldn't say unknown, but it was far less. Typically, if a band a, 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 a band from, um, from England finds success in their home country and then tries to break here, but there are these rare examples of the band that never really catches on um, where they're from. And yet, in the case of The Fix, has a lot of success here. They were originally the FIX Fix. The record label did not care for the um, possible drug connotation, so they added in super early 80s style an extra X to their name. And uh, I think they were really leaning into um, more of a a uh, US-friendly vibe this album is called Reach the Beach. So although they were from London, they were already looking California when they released this song right here. Bob Marley passed away in May of 1981. It was exactly two years later 
that his record label released a final uh, posthumous album. That album is called Confrontation, kind of Nature of the Beast. It was just like odds and ends of unreleased stuff and unfinished songs, and he had band members finishing up demos. But there was one last truly like great greatest hits caliber song that was not released in Bob Marley's lifetime that came out on Confrontation. Uh, and it's kind of crazy to look back and realize that in in his lifetime and even you know a couple of years after his lifetime bob marley had like no presence uh, in terms of mainstream chart success here in the states the reggae thing was caught on so much bigger in the uk and i believe this song went to number four on the uk charts but it came and went without charting here in the states and it's it's interesting, you know. It's right up there with uh, Violent Femmes for these these albums, these songs that everybody that I know and probably everyone you know knows by heart that are are not hit songs. They never enjoyed chart success. I think it would really wait until. I feel like it was my generation. I mean, I'm not taking credit or anything, but I feel like in the '90s, just every kid let's face it kind of got into smoking weed and got really really into the uh the bob marley compilation legend and i know in large part it was legend which you know uh bob marley and reggae purists sometimes criticize that compilation for pretty much just putting on the stuff that american people white people would like and not necessarily representing the overall depth and breadth of his catalog and what whatever uh, validity that criticism may have it definitely worked. Legend was a very, very successful album. And Legend is, I think it's the reason why most of us are familiar with Bob Marley. And it was the, the it was the gateway drug, the entryway to people who would then go on and go much deeper, not only into his stuff, but Peter Tosh, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, here in May of 1983, they released the single, they made a music video, um, but it would be years before everybody and their mom would know the words to Buffalo Soldier. May of 83 saw the release of not one, but two utterly iconic heavy metal albums. Ronnie James Dio parted ways with Black Sabbath, becoming the second singer and following in the footsteps of Ozzy, obviously, to leave that band and find uh, massive, perhaps even bigger solo success. So he forms a band called Dio and um, makes an album that has two iconic cuts, Rainbow in the Dark in the Dark being one of them and this song right here being the other Shiny diamonds like the eyes of a cat in the black and blue something is coming for you Look out race for the morning you can hide in the sun till you see the light
elsewhere in May of 83, Iron Maiden were firing on all cylinders and arguably at their peak. They released an album that became their highest charting album here in the States. In 1983, Kerrang! magazine, the UK metal mag, um, ranked it the number one metal album of all time. The album came out in 83 and the poll came out in 83. There may have been a little bit of recency bias going on there, but uh, all music uh, decades later would describe it as, quote, essential for anyone with even the most basic interest in heavy metal. Uh, to put it simply, if you do not like this, you do not like heavy metal. This was a, a big swing from a band with a, a big production budget. Boy, this was the heyday of the record industry. Iron Maiden took over a French like hotel, some sort of chalet, granted in the off season. So it was like a shining kind of thing. Nobody was going to be using it, but they took over an entire hotel and they rehearsed in the restaurant area. And that was in well, France. And then they went to the Bahamas and recorded the album. And then they flew to New York where they mixed uh, among other songs, what would become one of their signature tracks featuring the, uh, their signature two-guitar lead interplay. Also from England, but stylistically diametrically opposed to Iron Maiden in May of 83, New Order released, I believe, their second album. And it's, as you probably know, always a little dicey to talk about uh, numbering albums with uh, New Order because New Order emerged uh, is uh, from the ashes of Joy Division, is the remnants of Joy Division. So... Joy Division, Joy Division made one record, and then their singer tragically took his life, and then they kind of carried on without him before rebranding and shifting in a different direction. And in the middle era there, the, the first uh, New Order album still sounded, for very understandable reasons, quite a bit like Joy Division. But here in May of 83, uh, they found a new stride and embraced <clears throat> even more of like the, the synth technology that was taking hold in the new wave movement and they kind of sh struck on a sort of i feel like a, a an, an under remarked upon sweet spot I, th I feel like new order were and remain kind of the most respectable synth pop band of the 80s does that sound crazy to you there's a lot of uh, other indie acts who you know came out in in the 80s the smiths come to mind or the cure comes to mind but to a lot of people um well first of all they're not synth pop acts but also there's people who love that stuff but there's also people who find it uh ludicrous i think it's kind of hard to even if you don't like new order it's kind of hard to listen to new order and, and call them ludicrous and yet they're absolutely at home and of a piece with all of the like really credible indie particularly uk indie acts of the 80s and yet 
they were able to make these songs that were uh, incredibly accessible to a mainstream audience without ever feeling like they were kind of selling out their roots or their real sound or their credibility. You know what I'm saying? This song, maybe arguably their signature hit, it's it's synth pop to the core, it's 80s to the core, and yet I would argue it's about as timeless as uh, any of those aforementioned types of music could possibly be. Okay, yeah, okay, it's, it's, it's pretty 80s. I, I, I can kind of hear people, I, I can hear what some of you are thinking. But still, that song um, uh, in the 90s, Orgy, what the hell was that? Orgy just did like a butt rock new metal version of that, and Orgy became sort of gigantic superstars on the basis of that one pretty faithful, just add some electric guitars cover. And then, boy, in the 2000s, the number of bands coming out of New York who were pretty shamelessly aping that, I see, was I played that off of the Wedding Singer soundtrack, if not exactly timeless, if not exactly for everybody, um, definitely uh, an incredibly durable uh, signature song from New Order. Moving on, I got a couple more new releases to talk about here before I direct the crowd over to my Patreon for... uh, the uh what do we got over there oh yeah 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 lita ford goes metal dude it's crazy it's so crazy i was thinking um the runaways because my daughter is really into is it bad that i that i'm gonna let my daughter perform cherry bomb at a talent show as a five-year-old and if your answer is no it's fine have you listened to the lyrics recently it's pretty crazy man that the runaways had i'm pretty sure three members go on to greater success after being in the runaways it's even crazier that none of them were the singer usually if anybody gets out alive when a band goes under it's the singer right they just go solo but joan jett obviously is joan jett and then the i want to say was mickey Steele the bass player of the runaways and she would join the bangles and i think she even may have taken a verse in walk like an egyptian and then uh lita ford took her a minute uh a minute uh, longer to to put the pieces together we find her at the dawn of her solo career on the best of the rest of may 1983 waiting for you now at patreon.com slash mike tully but right here right now let's talk about billy bragg do you know who billy bragg is i think everybody could use a little bit of Billy Bragg in their life. By the time I became familiar with him, he was like a, you know, conscience of rock, maybe like headlining a benefit kind of thing. Sort of like where um, Against Me, if you're familiar with Against Me, sort of what their career was uh, was was like uh, in the in the early 2000s. I assume Laura Jane's still doing a bunch of benefits and stuff like that too, right? Um, <clears throat> very political but at the base of it all just this really 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 good songwriter who wrote these really great really simple really memorable 
songs. And uh, in in May of 83, he put out his debut album, which I, I, I'm not going to pretend I go deep on Billy Bragg. I believe it's his best known song. It's certainly um, the best one that I've ever heard was on there. Let me tell you a little bit about how he got to this point, though. Billy Bragg was an absolute consummate hustler. So he's over there in England and he's in punk bands and he's just not finding the right situation. It's not happening or he's not gelling with the band members. And so ultimately he starts busking, you know, he, he just, it's a, it's a guy with a guitar, but because it, he's a punk rocker and it's the punk rock era, he's a little bit of a different busker. He doesn't have uh, an acoustic guitar. He is a one man band. It's just him standing there with an electric guitar, which is, you know, kind of unusual and makes him stand out a bit. And I'm sure plenty of people were loving picking up what he was throwing down on street corners, but it wasn't getting him a record deal. So at one point, he, uh, I think he posed as like an electrician or a plumber to gain entry to uh, to record label offices and then hand through his tape at a guy. And the crazy thing is you would think that um, on principle they would throw away that tape, but the guy actually listened to the tape, said, yes, this is great. Imagine how heartbreaking it would be to be a Billy Bragg. You break in, it works. The guy takes the tape. The guy listens to it. You know, there's that pregnant pause as you're, list- you're watching him listening and you have no idea what he's thinking. And he turns around and he goes... This is, do you remember on The Simpsons when Bart tries out to be Radioactive Man and the, the director goes, that's great, you've got the part. That's what I would be saying if you were two inches taller. I think it was basically the same thing. The guy turns around and he goes, this is amazing. I really like it. I see it. I want to give you a record deal. But our label's broke and we're about to go out of business. So we're not signing any new artists. But keep trying. You got some good stuff here. So he's back to the drawing board. And um, there's this very, very legendary British uh, Radio 1 or Radio 2 uh, DJ, John Peel. If you've ever seen a Peel session from a band live in studio, that's John Peel. He is like the god of indie music in the UK. And one time, uh, Billy Bragg is listening to John Peel like every other musician in England. And John Peel happens to casually mention that he's hungry. So Billy Bragg drops what he's doing and goes and gets some Indian food. And runs to the studio and they let him in and John Peel eats the food and as a thank you plays the record and he likes it. And that is actually how Billy Bragg got his start. And it's the reason why he released his debut album in May of 1983. If you don't know this song, um, I think you're going to really like uh, A New England. I loved you then as I love you still Though I put you on a bed still they put you on the pill I don't feel bad about letting you go I just feel sad about letting you know I don't want to change the world I'm not looking for a New England I'm just looking for another girl great is that do you know that song how flipping good i always say it every time i play that on a pod why did nobody it's not too late why did nobody cover that why did green when green day had trouble writing hits during that like whole nimrod era why why didn't they just do um a full band power trio version of a new england money in the bank um not too late if you're still trying to get your your uh, garage punk band off the ground i've got two more new releases to talk to you about George Benson, this is a name you might know. He 
was uh, a prodigy jazz guitar player, and he was well established, established starting in his teens in the the muso world. But he made his move into uh, into trying to actually sell some records and make some money, and maybe um, not a lot of ladies at jazz guitar concerts. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> if you've ever been to one, but he collaborated with a couple guys from Toto, and they wrote a song that suited his sound, and it was uh, it was successful enough in uh, adult contemporary, etc. And I'm led to believe it continues to be a smooth jazz staple to this day and it is indeed pretty goddamn smooth And finally, one last song from a rock and roll Hall of Famer, namely Joe Walsh of the Eagles. Since the birth of rock and roll, artists have aspired to do more than just write catchy tunes and get you to shake your ass. They're uh, they're there for social commentary as well. They're the voice of a generation. They're there to look at the world and the culture and the pop culture and go, "Hey guys, what's going on? And we, what are we doing? What are we doing here? We got We could be we could be better than this. Come on, world." And uh, in the case of Joe Walsh, he looked at the uh, the Pac-Man craze of the early '80s, and he was like, "Why don't kids just play pool and pinball anymore?" And he wrote a song about it, and he made um, what sounds like a horrendously embarrassing music video for it as well. I would encourage you to go find the uh, the, the video for Space Age Whiz Kids featuring Joe Walsh on YouTube. But for now, I will leave you with a clip of that song, and I'll remind you one last time, there's more May 1983 new releases and like 300 other podcasts waiting for you exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully, hope to see you there. If not, I look forward to seeing you here very, very soon.